0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life, by C.S. Lewis. Chapter 14, Checkmate. Epigraph. The one principle of hell is, I am my own. George MacDonald. In the summer of 1922, I finished greats. As there were no philosophical posts going, or none that I could get, my long-suffering father offered me a fourth year at Oxford during which I read English so as to get a second string to my bow. The great war with Barfield had, I think, begun at this time. No sooner had I entered the English school than I went to George Gordon's discussion class, and there I made a new friend. The very first words he spoke marked him out from the 10 or 12 others who were present, a man after my own heart, and that too at an age when the instantaneous friendships of earlier youth were becoming rather rare events. His name was Neville Coghill. I soon had the shock of discovering that he, clearly the most intelligent and best-informed man in that class, was a Christian and a thoroughgoing supernaturalist. There were other traits that I liked, but found, for I was still very much a modern, oddly archaic chivalry, honor, courtesy, freedom, and gentleness. One could imagine him fighting a duel. He spoke much ribaldry, but never villainy. Barfield was beginning to overthrow my chronological snobbery. Coghill gave it another blow. Had something really dropped out of our lives? Was the archaic simply the civilized, and the modern simply the barbaric? It will seem strange to many of my critics who regard me as a typical laudator temporis acti, that this question should have arisen so comparatively late in my life. But then the key to my books is Dunn's maxim, the heresies that men leave are hated most. The things I assert most vigorously are those that I resisted long and accepted late. These disturbing factors in Coghill ranged themselves with a wider disturbance which was now threatening my whole earlier outlook. All the books were beginning to turn against me. Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen long before the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life and my actual experiences as a reader. George MacDonald had done more to me than any other writer. Of course, it was a pity he had that bee in his bonnet about Christianity. He was good in spite of it. Chesterton had more sense than all the other moderns put together, baiting, of course, his Christianity. Johnson was one of the few authors whom I felt I could trust utterly. Curiously enough, he had the same kink. Spencer and Milton, by a strange coincidence, had it too. Even among ancient authors, the same paradox was to be found. The most religious, Plato, Aeschylus, Virgil, were clearly those on whom I could really feed. On the other hand, those writers who did not suffer from religion, and with whom in theory my sympathy ought to have been complete, Shaw, and Wells, and Mill, and Gibbon, and Voltaire, all seemed a little thin. What, as boys, we called tinny. It wasn't that I didn't like them. They were all, especially given, entertaining, but hardly more. There seemed to be no depth in them. They were too simple. The roughness and density of life did not appear in their books. Now that I was reading more English, the paradox began to be aggravated. I was deeply moved by the dream of the rude, more deeply still by Langland, intoxicated for a time by Dunn, deeply and lastingly satisfied by Thomas Brown. But the most alarming of all was George Herbert. Here was a man who seemed to me to excel all the authors I had ever read in conveying the very quality of life as we actually live it from moment to moment. But, the wretched fellow, instead of doing it all directly, insisted on meditating it through what I would still have called the Christian mythology. On the other hand, most of the authors who might be claimed as precursors of modern enlightenment seemed to me very small beer and bored me cruelly. I thought Bacon, to speak frankly, a solemn, pretentious ass, yawned my way through Restoration comedy, and, having manfully struggled on to the last line of Don Juan, wrote on the end leaf, never again. The only non-Christians who seemed to me really to know anything were the Romantics, and a good many of them were dangerously tinged with something like religion, even at times with Christianity. The upshot of it all could nearly be expressed in a perversion of Roland's great line in the Chanson. Christians are wrong, but all the rest are bores." The natural step would have been to inquire a little more closely whether the Christians were, after all, wrong. But I did not take it. I thought I could explain their superiority without that hypothesis. Absurdly, yet many absolute idealists have shared this absurdity, I thought that the Christian myth conveyed to unphilosophic minds as much of the truth, that is of absolute idealism, as they were capable of grasping and that even that much put them above the irreligious. Those who could not rise to the notion of the absolute would come nearer to the truth by belief in a God than by disbelief. Those who could not rise to the notion of the absolute would come nearer to the truth by belief in a God than by disbelief. Those who could not understand how, as reasoners, we participated in a timeless and therefore deathless world would get a symbolic shadow of the truth by believing in a life after death. The implication, that something which I and most other undergraduates could master without extraordinary pains would have been too hard for Plato, Dante, Hooker, and Pascal, did not yet strike me as absurd. I hope this is because I never looked it squarely in the face. As the plot quickens and thickens towards its end, I leave out more and more of such matters as would go into a full autobiography. My father's death, with all the fortitude, even playfulness, which he displayed in his last illness, does not really come into the story I am telling. My brother was at that time in Shanghai. Nor would it be relevant to tell in detail how I became a temporary lecturer at UNIV for a year and was elected a fellow of Modlin in 1925. The worst is that I must leave undescribed many men whom I love, and to whom I am deeply in debt. G. H. Stevenson and E.F. Carrot, my tutors, the Fark, but who could paint him anyway, and five great maudlin men who enlarged my very idea of what a learned life should be, P.V.M. Benneke, C.C.J. Webb, J.A. Smith, F.E. Brightman, and C.T. Onions. Except for Oldie, I have always been blessed both in my official and my unofficial teachers. In my earlier years at Magdalen, I inhabited a world where hardly anything I wanted to know needed to be found out by my own unaided efforts. One or other of these could always give you a clue. You'll find something about it in Alanus. Macrobius would be the man to try. Doesn't Camparetti mention it? Have you looked for it in Dukaj? I found, as always, that the ripest are kindest to the raw and the most studious have most time to spare. When I began teaching for the English faculty, I made two other friends, both Christians. These queer people seem now to pop up on every side, who were later to give me much help in getting over the last style. They were H. V. V. Dyson, then of Reading, and J. R. R. Tolkien. Friendship with the latter marked the breakdown of two old prejudices. At my first coming into the world, I had been implicitly, warned, never to trust a papist, and at my first coming into the English faculty, explicitly, never to trust a philologist. Tolkien was both. Realism had been abandoned, the new look was somewhat damaged, and chronological snobbery was seriously shaken. All over the board, my pieces were in the most disadvantageous positions. Soon I could no longer cherish even the illusion that the initiative lay with me. My adversary began to make his final moves. The first move annihilated the last remains of the new look. I was suddenly impelled to re-read, which was certainly no business of mine at the moment, the Hippolytus of Euripides. In one chorus, all that world's end imagery which I had rejected when I assumed my new look rose before me. I liked, but did not yield. I tried to patronize it, but next day I was overwhelmed. There was a transitional moment of delicious uneasiness, and then, instantaneously, the long inhibition was over. The dry desert lay behind. I was off once more into the land of longing. My heart at once broken and exalted as it had never been since the old days at Bookham. There was nothing whatever to do about it. No question of returning to the desert. I had simply been ordered, or rather, compelled, to take that look off my face, and never to resume it, either. "'Tis the gift to be simple. "'Tis the gift to be free. "'Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. "'And when we find ourselves in the place just right, "'Twill be in the valley of love and delight."